This is Because I Said So, parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, John Roseman, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved. From American Family Radio, here's your host, John Roseman. Hello out there. Glad you could join us. I'm your host, John Roseman. The show is called Because I Said So, and we are all about parenting and family issues. If you want to find out more about me, my books, my upcoming speaking schedule, go to johnrosemond.com, J-O-H-N-R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D.com. On one of my websites, and and this particular website is designated as parentguru.com, parentguru.com. And no, I'm not implying that I practice Eastern religions or anything like that covertly. It's just, you know, a catchy title. That's all it is. Parentguru.com. On this website, along with a team of certified parent coaches, I answer questions submitted by parents. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the last two days, and and these were fairly typical days, 67% of the questions Two out of three have concerned toilet training. 67% of the questions have concerned toilet training. In one question, a three-year-old is afraid to use the potty. In another, a 26-month-old will only use the potty independently if he's uh, not wearing any clothes. In another... A 23-month-old seems oblivious to his parents' expectations concerning using the potty properly, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so forth. In a normal week, anywhere from one-half to two-thirds of the questions that we answer on Parent Guru concern toileting issues as It is known these days. The question becomes, why is something that caused parents no significant problems 60 plus years ago causing so many parents so many problems today? Toilet training, folks, has become the biggest hurdle, parenting hurdle of the preschool years. And the answer in a word, anxiety. Today's parents, moms especially, are anxious about something their great-grandmothers approached in a calm, composed, and confident manner. These great-grandmothers, who trained their children in the 1950s, 1940s, 1930s, 1800s, 1700s, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, communicated their composure to their children, and their children did what children do when parents communicate calmly and confidently. They did what their parents expected them to do. Folks, when it comes to the discipline of children, it doesn't matter what the objective is, what the, quote, behavior is end quote, is that you want from the child in question, getting it 
is all a matter of how you communicate. And what I'm saying is that 60 years ago, my mother had no problems with toilet training because she was not anxious concerning the issue. And today's mother is having huge problems because she is anxious concerning the issue. How did she become anxious? She became anxious because she read. She reads, today's mother does. And my mother didn't read parenting books. They weren't available back then. Well, Spock was, and she read Spock. But Spock really, retitled today, would be called Pediatrics for Parents. It really wasn't a parenting book. So calm, composed, confident communication. That is the secret to effective discipline, no matter the issue. It is not a matter, discipline, of using correct methods, although, you know, consequences are sometimes necessary. But if the methods, techniques, and strategies in question worked, discipline today would be no, no more of a problem than it was 60 years ago, 160 years ago, 2,000 years ago, when there's zero evidence that it was hardly a problem at all. Effective discipline is all about one's attitude. Time out, one, two, three, magic, and all the other clever discipline methods invented over the past couple of generations are not going to work without the right parental attitude. Furthermore, with the right parental attitude, virtually anything is going to work. Your great-grandmother got great results from nothing more than a stern look. But back to toilet training. In the mid-1950s, a study done cooperatively by Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and Princeton revealed that nearly 90% of children 23 months of age were completely toilet trained. They were accident-free, ladies and gentlemen, 23 months of age. And then, in the late 60s and early 1970s, a fellow named T. Barry Brazelton, a pediatrician who was in residence at Harvard and also at Boston Children's Hospital, began writing books. And, and by the way, because he was at Harvard and Boston Children's Hospital and a pediatrician, people thought he knew what he was talking about. And he began writing books and articles on toilet training in which he uh, implied that toilet training was fraught with po potentially apocalyptic psychological ramifications. And parents began reading T. Barry Brazelton's books and writings on toilet training, and parents began, mothers especially, becoming anxious, something previous generations of mothers had not been. Previous generations of mothers had toilet trained their children at 18, 20, 22 months. T. Barry Brazelton said it required psychologically damaging force. He used the word force over and over and over again to properly toilet train, to toilet train a child under the age of two. So, mothers began to delay toilet training. Well, is it easier to house train a four-month-old puppy or a one-year-old dog? And the answer, of course, is the four-month-old puppy. And likewise, it is easier to toilet train an 18-month-old than it is a three-year-old, as parents are finding out, but they refuse to accept the evidence. 
Brazelton said that you should effectively allow the child to train himself. No, you shouldn't. That's as absurd as saying you should let a child teach himself to read. What are adults for in children's lives anyway, if not to teach them the skills they need to become civilized human beings, one such skill being that you don't walk around in public smelling bad. So as a result, largely of T. Barry Brazelton, doctor, later spokesperson for Pampers, today's moms bring anxiety to the process of toilet training. They worry that it won't go well, and as a consequence, they do what anxious micromanagers do. They hover. And in the course of hovering, they communicate their anxiety to their children. And that means they fail to communicate their expectations clearly, calmly, and firmly. As a result, their kids do what kids do under those circumstances. They either become confused or they push back. And in either case, they don't do what they are supposed to do. This isn't because they're not ready Brazelton invented, he pulled out of thin air, out of a hat, readiness signs. Well, the only readiness sign your great-grandmother considered when it came to toilet training was the question, was she ready to stop changing diapers? And yes, she was. And so she went and she said to her child, I'm not changing diapers anymore. You've seen us use the toilet. Now you're going to use one, too. End of story. Any questions? If you need some help, I'll give you some help. And in three to seven days, according to the older women that I talked to who remember toilet training, and most of them do, it took three to seven days. Three to seven days of simply saying to the child, this is what you're going to do. And today's mother goes, hey, do you want to learn something new today? And then wonders why her child, no, doesn't want to learn something new today. This stuff about readiness signs is a bunch of baloney, folks. The problem, when a child pushes back against attempts on his parents' part to toilet training, the problem is not some mismatch between the child and parental expectations. The problem is parent anxiety, pure and simple. Parent anxiety creates a problem that either wouldn't exist otherwise or would be a mere bump in the road. There is no significant difference between teaching a child to use a spoon and teaching a child to use the potty. Both are self-help skills. Both involve trial and error, which means that both involve messes. Do parents read books about spoon training? No. Do they worry that their kids might not be ready for spoon training? No. Do they hover over their kids trying to prevent them from spilling food all over themselves in the process of trying to get a spoon to their mouths? No. Do they react to mistakes with anxiety, anger, or micromanagement? No. They don't do any of those things when it comes to teaching children how to use a spoon properly. Parents are calm. Parents are patient. They communicate their expectations straightforwardly. They maintain their composure in the face of, quote, accidents, end quote. And for all those reasons, no one has ever, in more than 40 years, 
asked me a question about spoon training. I'm John Roseman. The show is called Because I Said So. We're here on American Family Radio every Saturday at 5 o'clock Central Time. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show, folks. Glad you could stay with us. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, I'm John Roseman, your host. The show is called Because I Said So. We are all about parenting. If you want to find out more about me, my syndicated newspaper column, my books, uh, my upcoming speaking schedule, just go to my website at John Rosemond. That's J-O-H-N-R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D.com. And there you can find my bookstore and my last five syndicated newspaper columns. And if you're interested in discovering whether I'm going to be speaking in your area, just go to johnroseman.com and just click on my upcoming speaking schedule. So here's a question from a couple of parents. Our 17-year-old is a highly spoiled underachiever. As a junior in high school, he is failing two classes and borderline in the rest. We know that his problems are largely due to our indulgent parenting style. We recently read your book on teenagers. The book is titled Teen Proofing, T-E-E-N hyphen proofing, like child proofing, only teen proofing, and have made some progress, but we're feeling a sense of urgency concerning his school issues. We're ready to do some drastic things. Where do you think we should start? Well, good question and good for you. Good for you to have come to grips with the fact that your child's problems are due to your indulgence, your permissiveness, that you put this child on an entitlement program that is now 17 years in the making, good for you for accepting full responsibility for the problem. Let me tell you, you are in the parenting minority in America today. And here's the good news. If you have accepted, or I'm speaking now to parents who are not the parents who asked this question, if you are willing to accept full responsibility for the problems that your children have, the behavior problems, the school performance problems, you can solve them. If you are willing to accept full responsibility for them, then you are unlikely to get yourselves entangled in the child mental health machine in America to, that exists in America today, and is so toxic and completely counterproductive to any positive outcomes. So, as you now realize, your son is in dire need of a major wake-up call. Good for you. Start by stripping his room down to bare essentials. I call this kicking the child out of the Garden of Eden. 
begin by stripping your son's room down to bare essentials one day when he's, you know, off at school on his merry way. Strip his room down, take away any and all electronic devices, his cell phone, video game, you know, iPad, uh, iPod, uh, everything, iPhone, i this, i that. Suspend all of his privileges, including driving. And when he comes home and discovers that there is nothing but a bed, chest of drawers, and a desk in his room, nothing, by the way, take away his favorite clothing. I mean, strip his life down to basically nothing, bare essentials. When he comes home and discovers this, just inform him that his normal life will be restored. When he has improved his grades to no less than what he is capable of and sustained said improvement consistently, for a minimum of eight weeks. Anything less will invite cursory improvement than backsliding. You could get stuck in that sort of manipulative back and forth forever. In other words, anything else, any lesser consequences will invite cursory improvement and then backsliding, and you could get caught in that sort of vicious cycle for a long, long time. Folks, I've had tremendous success, even with kids as old as 15, 16, 17, and 18, stripping their lives down to bare essential and staring the child in question in the eye, not me, but the parents, and saying, this is how you're going to live as long as you're in my house until the problem in question is gone permanently. Until you have shaped up, this is how you're going to live. No electronics, no favorite clothing, no privileges. All you do is you go to school, you go to church, you go to your room, and you contemplate your future. Unfortunately, this, in this particular case, is an 11th hour action. Obviously, the earlier parents intervene in a problem, the more optimistic the prognosis. On the other hand, it's better to do something late than to never do anything at all. And by the way, it's never too late to do the right thing. There are not any guarantees, I don't care what the child's age, that what parents do when they finally put the hammer down on a problem is really going to fully correct the problem. But it is never too late to start doing the right thing. And it is always better to do something late than to never do anything at all. At this point, there is a lot of history and momentum behind your son's motivation issues. Getting him to turn himself around is going to require a unified front between the two of you and calm, purposeful resolve. Don't expect to see consistent progress for at least six weeks, during which time keep the faith, stay the course, and be fully prepared for things to get worse before they begin getting better. Why is that, John? One might ask. Because when parents finally pull the rug of enabling, 
entitlement, an overindulgence out from under an underachieving or misbehaving child, the typical reaction is full collapse along with complaints from the child to the effect that since he has no privileges, he now has nothing to care about. Therefore, he's not going to do anything to bring up his grades until his privileges are restored. Believe me, this is nothing more than manipulative self-drama soap opera with a heavy dose of attempted hostage-taking thrown in. It's an attempt to get the parents in question, you, to question their judgment and begin negotiating. Will you give me my cell phone back, the child says, if I bring my grades up for a week? Or the child says, if you give me my cell phone and driving privileges back, I'll bring my grades up, I promise. Don't do it. Do not negotiate with a terrorist under any circumstances. If your son begins making promises of that or any sort, do not believe a word he says. Under these circumstances, children become liars. That is the blunt way of putting it. Sorry to offend anyone's sensibilities, but that is what children become under these circumstances. When parents put the hammer down, finally, on a problem that has been long-standing, children begin desperately attempting to negotiate, and they begin making all manner of promises. And they can look so sincere. Mom, Dad, really, I promise. Don't fall for this. Children are sociopaths. Simply smile and tell him if he can bring his grades up for a week, he can surely bring them up for two weeks and then three and then eight. And keep reminding him that you're not asking him to do any more than what he is capable of. If you give him even the proverbial inch, he will think he can make you give up the proverbial mile. If you make one step backwards on what you have told him you are going to do and your expectations, he has to bring his grades up and keep them up for eight weeks before he begins to get his privileges back. And he doesn't get everything back all at once. He gets things back a little bit at a time and you see things, how things are going to go. And if they go well, then you give them a little more back. And if it goes well, you give them a little more back and so on and so forth. If you give him even the proverbial inch, if you make one step back, he will try to take the proverbial mile. He will try to get you to take two and then three and then four steps back. And in no time, you'll be right back where you started from. But your son will know that he can beat you at your own game. So don't play any games. Go into this. And folks, I am talking to parents out there in America, in American family radio land, regardless of what the problem is. Go into whatever rehabilitation program you set up, fully prepared for backlash of one sort or another. The child's reaction, and especially on the part of a 17-year-old, is likely to include 
anger, self-pity, threats of running away, or other equally silly things. This is your golden opportunity to get control of your relationship with your son, given that he is 17 years old. It may be your last opportunity. Don't blow it. I'm John Rosemond. This is Because I Said So on American Family Radio. JohnRosemond.com for more information. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week, Saturday, 5 o'clock Central Time. All across America, have a good one.